How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone will get an opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship, ready to focus on the word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege to be able to come together in a free nation to study your word, to freely proclaim the truth of your word. And Father, we know that this nation is under incredible and increasing attack and that there are too many people who are uh, in this nation who are willing allies of Satan in his assault upon Christianity and upon freedom and upon the truth. And, Father, we know that as uh, that it's very possible that in days to come, uh, years to come, that we will not have this freedom and there, there will be a real chance that uh, those who freely proclaim your or boldly proclaim your word will uh, be uh, threatened with uh, jail or imprisonment or maybe worse. And, Father, we pray that now we would wake up and this nation would wake up and realize the importance of truth and realize that uh, if we do not take action now in terms of our leadership, that we may never get another chance. And, Father, we see some things going on nationally that are, uh, they've been distressing for a long time, but now they seem even more, more distressing and more discouraging. And, Father, we know that you are in control of history, and so our responsibility is to study your word, to apply it, and to go out into the world to make the impact that we can on the basis of the truth that we have in our soul. So, Father, we pray that we might be further prepared this evening as we study your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Now, Romans 5, as I have pointed out in the past, is a transitional chapter. It, 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 Paul is taking us from the realities of the foundation of our, what we call salvation, but what he specifically calls justification in uh, this epistle. He makes a strong distinction between justification as that which takes place at the instant of salvation and the word group that we normally translate as saved, he reserves to refer to primarily the uh, Christian life, the life of the believer after salvation. So we have to make that distinction and always be aware that there are, uh, it's typical in our culture, I'm sure it happens in other cultures, where certain words become um, sort of taken out of a scriptural context and used in ways that aren't the way the Bible necessarily uses that word or maybe it doesn't use that word that way all the time. And saved is like that. We normally think of saved as a word that means getting into heaven and escaping eternal condemnation. And it is used that way in Scripture at times, but the word, whether it's the verb sozo or a noun for salvation, soteria, often refers to, it can refer to healing, it can refer to deliverance from some uh, calamity of some sort, or it can refer to 
the uh, outworking of our justification. For example, in Philippians uh, chapter 2, as Paul is addressing those who are already justified, those who are already believers, those who are already secure in their eternal destiny of heaven, that God is going to work out uh, his salvation in them. And that is the post-salvation or post-justification spiritual growth that occurs in the believer. That is going to be the thrust of Paul's focus from Romans 6 to Romans 8. In Romans 4, we finished our discussion about justification. In Romans 5, 1, Paul began to focus on the implications of that that justification. 5, 1 states, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, an already accomplished fact, we have peace with God, present reality, the present result of a past action, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 2 and 3 there, he goes on to talk about the implications of that in terms of our faith and our hope and our spiritual spiritual life and spiritual growth. That's the thrust of those first 11 churches, I mean first, first 11 verses. And then by verse 11, he says more than this or more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And I've pointed out in the previous lesson how he shifts his vocabulary from from a justification to a broader concept, which is reconciliation, which is all, always related in the Scripture to this concept of peace. Now he's going to sort of backtrack a little bit, when we get into uh, this next section, because he wants to make sure his readers and make sure that we also understand uh, the connection between justification and the spiritual life. So uh, R- Romans 5 really stands as a hinge, as it were, between uh, the past discussion on justification and the coming discussion on the spiritual life. He's, he's transitioning from one uh, to the other. So when we get into this section, he's, he's drawing some final points, to, uh, bringing some final points to our attention about justification, and then he's going to develop that into uh, this, the, the way the believer should, should think and react in terms of sin in his own life. So just uh, give us a little overview as we begin this in the first uh, uh, 17 or 18, uh, from verses 12 through 17 or 18, Paul says, uh, first of all, in verse 12, he's going to give us a, is there a reason I'm not, showing up on the screen, the, those, those things are on. This is acting like it's on. I told you, it's just been one of those days since early this morning, so we just have to, uh, that's there. But when I go to that, it just blacks out. Okay. Well, we'll just have to mess around with this a minute. I have 
seen this happen now a couple of times where when I have been working on something at home and when I come up here that um, it is no longer, it either no longer is showing whatever it was, I mean it won't project, it'll project it over pixelated and I have to reboot the computer or it projects it uh, uh, and this time it was just all black, so I've got to reboot the computer. That'll come back up in a minute, but we'll continue. Uh, in verse 12, he's going to bring us to a con- uh, start bringing us to this conclusion uh, of, on the basis of what he has talked about. And in your, if you're using a King James or New King James, verse 12 starts with a therefore. But actually, in the Greek, it's not a therefore. Therefore indicates a conclusion. But he uses another phrase. He uses a phrase in the Greek. It's diotuta. It indicates for this reason. And, and for this reason isn't drawing a logical conclusion based on previous information, but that he's bringing something new to what he has been saying in the previous 11 verses. It's like if you were weaving a rope, you've laid down one, uh, uh, you have laid down one rope or one thread, and then you lay another one on top of it, and then you begin to twist them together. And that is uh, what he is doing rhetorically in, um, in this particular chapter. Don't have the patience for it today. Um, so he he's starting this off, and he says, therefore, or for this reason. And what he's going to do here is he's going to start a line of thought in verse 12, uh, where he starts off, therefore, just as, and he uses a certain kind of construction here in the Greek, gets a little technical, as we'll see in a minute, where he uses a, a Greek word here that indicates the, it, it's like, uh, it, it's like a conditional clause, where you have two parts to it. You have the first part called the protasis, which is the if clause, and then you have a second part, which is called the um, apodosis, which is the second clause. And this is the kind of thing he'll say, just as, and then later he says, thus. Except he doesn't say thus in verse 12. He doesn't get around to saying thus until verse 18. Because in the middle, it, it's as if he uh, stopped and said, I'm not sure they're really understanding the point, so I want to make sure they don't misunderstand me. So he sort of goes down a little bit of a uh, rabbit trail, which is uh, called an anacoluthan in, uh, in literary circles, and he diverts our, te- uh, 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 diverts his attention for a minute to explain how and why every human being is declared a sinner. Because we have to understand what the sin nature is. We have to understand what sin is, and we have to understand the basis of our condemnation. And this is something that is uh, 
so difficult for so many people to understand. Gene and I have had lots of conversations about this over the last 15 years or so as uh, he goes around talking to uh, many people, giving the gospel to many people uh, around the country, asking people who have been um, been in churches for years uh, uh, different questions about how they know they're saved and what the basis for their salvation is. And he uses a little track we have out here some, sometimes. It's a, it's a little test. And it asks the question uh, of people um, to take this little test to see if they're going to get into heaven. And, of course, it begins with all these questions about that indicate that you get into heaven if you have done good works or if you've been to church or all of these good things. And he was recently telling me about a uh, conversation he had with a uh, 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 someone here in the Houston area, and they went to one of the rather large, large, fairly conservative evangelical churches in Houston where they have been taught the gospel very clearly, and I'm not being critical of that church, so I'll name it, and that Second Baptist, and Ed Young has given the gospel clearly um, over the years. And yet this person had been there for years and was talking about how great it was, and yet when they lo- looked at this test and got to the conclusion that they all the little check marks were wrong because they checked going to church and being good and everything, they flew into a rage. She had no clue about the gospel, and no clue had, uh, of, of salvation. Here we go. Now we can we, we can get started. But this is the problem. We think people think that the reason that they are going to go to the lake of fire is because of their sin, and they think that the reason that they are going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ is because of their sin, and we t- got to the edge of this. Uh, in, in um, some of the things I was talking about in the previous uh, previous lesson on on reconciliation, that Christ paid the penalty for every single sin, for the doctrine of subst- real substitution to be true, that means Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every person's sin. If you pay for somebody's uh, a tab at, at a restaurant, it's paid for. Now, they may not accept it, they may not like it, but it's still paid for. And and the way the gospel has been often presented by people who hold to unlimited atonement is that it's a hypothetical atonement or it's a potential. Jesus died for you, but if you reject it, then he didn't really die for you and you have to uh, pay for your sins in eternity. Now, I've heard some people say that, well, there are a couple of place, places in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says that to the Pharisees that they'll die in their sins. And that phrase, in your sins or in their sins, is used several places. But there's a difference between the preposition in and the preposition for. Dying in your sin, if you look at the uh, use of that phrase, and in John it's not clear, Jesus just makes this statement that you're going to die in your sin. So how do you find, how do you answer that question? How do you understand what a an ambiguous phrase means in a couple of places? Well, you look to see if it's used anywhere else. And maybe it's used somewhere else where it's not ambiguous. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, and though you were dead 
in your trespasses and sins. See, that's the same phrase. You're dead. He adds trespasses there. So if you just did a word search or dead in your sins, you wouldn't find it. But dead in your trespasses and sins is talking about being spiritually dead. They're born, obviously, they're, he's talking to them that you were in that previous state, physically alive, but you were spiritually dead. So in your trespasses and in your sins in that context means to be spiritually dead. And then the Apostle Paul uses that uh, same uh, structure in, in Colossians chapter 2, the passage we've spent so much time on, uh, off and on over the past uh, several years, where he, he puts it this way in, um, in verse 13 of Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. It's the same phrase. And so from those two clear passages, it, it seems that that phrase being, being in your sins is related to being a, in a state of being spiritually dead. And so when uh, Jesus addressed the Pharisees and others and said, you will die in your sins, what he is saying is you will die still physically still in a state of spiritual death. He's not saying you'll die for your sins. He's not saying you're going to make a payment for your sins. He's saying you're going to die in that, in that state. You're still spiritually dead. And as I pointed out uh, last time and in many other lessons, there are basically three problems that we all have. Now, this is an oversimplification, not an oversimplification, but a simplification of that whole barrier chart. And if you can remember this, it just summarizes the barrier, that we have three fundamental problems. Problem number one is a legal problem, and that is that God, as the judge of the universe, has assigned a legal penalty to the human race of, of spiritual death. And that that legal penalty, as a legal penalty, needs to be paid. And that's the first problem. The second and third problems are the consequence of that legal penalty that God assigned to Adam, which is what we're going to be focus on, focusing on here, is that when Adam died spiritually, that new status of spiritual death is what is passed on to all of his descendants. But that legal condemnation is what comes down on him at the beginning and then it changes his his status so that all of his descendants are born in a state of spiritual death so no matter what happens at the cross in terms of paying the legal penalty the reality is every human being is still experientially dead so the first problem is the legal penalty the second problem is the is the experience of being spiritually dead for every human being. And the third is, because we're spiritually dead, we produce unrighteousness. In Isaiah 64, 6, Isaiah said, all of our works of righteousness, not works of unrighteousness, but all of the best that we can do. And that word, that phrase that he uses there in the in the uh, Hebrew of, of uh, works uh, of Works of righteousness is a technical phrase in Judaism for doing good deeds. And it is on the basis of doing those good deeds, those deeds of tzedakah, that are the basis for, uh, them, that they believe are the basis for God uh, bringing them into, uh, eternity 
in, in the future. That's what they're evaluated on. And it's that same phrase, exact same phrase that Isaiah uses when he says all of our deeds of righteousness, all of our good deeds of righteousness are as filthy rags in the sight of God because they come out of a toxic origin, a toxic soil, which is our spiritually dead nature. So we got th- three problems. We're born, I mean, the legal penalty. Secondly, we're born spiritually dead. And third, we, we're unrighteous. And we can't be with God or have eternity with God unless the legal penalty is paid and unless there is a spiritual rebirth so that we move from death to life and unless we are, are, are righteous. Now, the first of those is solved at the cross. That's that universal aspect of the atonement that Christ died for all. And when we talk about or when the Bible talks about the that universal dimension of Christ's death, which is what I mentioned last time that he, uh, the Bible says uh, the Christ propitiated uh, the, the world, propitiated God, satisfied his righteousness for the whole world. And so that's universal. He Redemption, he pays the price for all. So redemption is for all. And reconciliation in terms of that objective side is for all. So that's universal. But those three things only satisfy the righteousness of God. They're all God-directed. They satisfy his righteousness. They pay the legal penalty and solve the, the barrier problem between God and man. But that still leaves every individual human being in a status of being spiritually dead and unrighteous. So that has to be solved. That's the condition that everybody's in. Their legal penalties paid, so the fact that they are, are un, they were under condemnation for sin, that legal penalty is no longer the issue. The issue is they have to have righteousness and they have to have, they have to be regenerated. That's why life is such a major, major theme in the Gospel of John and why John begins very close to the beginning with the conversation he had with, with Nicodemus, uh, related to the fact that you can't get into the kingdom unless you are born again, unless you're regenerated, unless you're given that new life because, because you're, be, you're born physically dead. But you're, uh, uh, I mean, you're born physically alive, but you're spiritually dead. So the individual aspects of the atonement that are related to regeneration and the imputation of righteousness solve those two problems. And that it has, then you, we're only regenerate when we believe, and we only receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness when we believe. So now, as Paul has established that, that, foundation for understanding imputation and justification, he wants to make sure that he's not going to move into understanding the spiritual life without his readers clearly comprehending the fact that sin isn't the issue in terms of the uh, person's relationship with God. That's why when he gets, he, 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 he builds his argument in Romans 6 and 7. Romans 8 is where he really nails the issues on the spiritual life. He doesn't mention the Holy Spirit until chapter 8. But the first verse in chapter 8 is, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. See, sin isn't the... He's got to get that across to everybody. Does that mean that that we can just do whatever we want to do? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying sin is not the issue in terms of a loss of salvation 
or that that is what we should be always be focused on is the fact that we have failed, that Christ solved that problem. But we have to understand that sin is still an experiential problem because it knocks us out of fellowship, but it doesn't cause us to lose our salvation. And see, this is the problem that Christians have had down through the centuries is they just have not known what to do with sin. And so in the early church, you had the rise of monasticism after persecution because when the church was being persecuted and people were being dragged out of their homes uh, because they were Christians and taken to the Colosseum and to the lions, it was easy to become arrogant and proud and thinking, oh, I'm spiritual, I'm becoming a martyr. But once Christianity became legalized, now what do you do to self-flagellate? You can't, uh, you can't become a martyr so you have to do it yourself. You have to go out and figure out ways to somehow impress God. So you either went out into the wilderness, like one of the early, uh, early what they call desert monks or hermit monks that would go live by themselves, or maybe they were the pillar monks who would climb up on a pillar 10, 12, 15 feet up in the air and sit there for six months or a year or two years or three years, and people would come out and go, ooh, aren't they spiritual? They're sitting up there and they're not coming down. I mean, it just must have been terrible. I'm glad they were high enough to where the winds didn't uh, <coughs> uh, affect you. It must have been terrible to get close to them after a couple of years up there without a bath. But they thought that was spiritual. And then they began to cloister in monasteries. We still have people who think that as a Christian, that's good to protect ourselves from the world. And, and a lot of churches are doing that where they, they build family life centers and bowling alleys and movie theaters and everything. And everything's about the life in the church. But Jesus said that we're to go out. I mean, we are called for a purpose to be actively engaged as ambassadors, which is where uh, what we talked about last time, that we are engaged to go into this foreign culture no matter what the threat might be, no matter how uh, how little security they may there may be uh, taking the gospel. to, And that's not... Re- ambassadorship isn't for apostles. It's for every believer. And you can't be an ambassador for Christ if you're going to sit at home... <laughs> And, uh, and, and with, with your five other Christian friends and think about how great we have it and how God's blessed us and the rest of the world is just, just going to hell in a handbasket. We are called to, to be engaged and not to retreat into some sort of monastic, uh, protective, uh, enclosure, whether it's your home, your family, your friends, or whatever it may be. It may not be a physical monastery, but it may be a metaphorical monastery. And so we have to be engaged. And, and the problem that the world has had is that they have, and Christianity has had, is they don't know what to do with sin afterwards. So they develop monasticism and asceticism and forms of legalism and all of these other things in order to somehow impress God. So Paul's coming back to this in these in these last verses of chapter 5 to make sure we understand what sin is, where it came from, how we got condemned, that we're not condemned for our personal sin. We are condemned for Adam's sin. Now, when Christ died on the cross, he died for Adam's sin plus every single sin that you and I ever ever commit. Last week, somebody asked me after class. I got an email question. I thought it was a good question. It's one that I, I've thought of at times. Uh, yet yet what it, sometimes when people ask me questions, it sort of crystallizes my thinking on something. And the question was, 
so if if all of our billions and billions and billions of sins are being poured out on Jesus, and each one of us probably has a couple of billion sins, you can't figure out how much a couple of billion is. Well, it's about you know one 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 billionth of the U.S. deficit, something like that. Um, and so we have all these sins of every single believer in history, and they're all being poured out on Jesus. And the question was, is that like, and he covered all that in three hours? And I said, well, think of it this way. You have billions and billions and, and mega billions of, of molecules of water that go over Niagara Falls uh, in three hours. And if you were standing at the base and being hit with that, you're experiencing it as a torrent rather than each individual molecule. And that's about the best I can come up with at, at the moment. But but we tend to get so microscopic sometimes. Jesus is thinking about, well, in his infin- infinitiveness, he can think about every sin in those three hours. And they're all poured out and judged up upon him at one time. So in order to understand this, what Paul is going to do is he's, first of all, he he's going to begin with this comparison and contrast between Adam and Christ, between the sin of Adam and the death of Christ on the cross. So there's a comparison and a contrast. But he starts off with the comparison. He doesn't get to the contrast until you get down to verse 18 and following. And then uh, that's verse 12. Therefore, he says, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, that's Adam's contribution. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. See, he can't even get, he's, he doesn't get beyond Adam. And he is in a, uh, he goes down a rabbit trail. Romans 5.13 in some Bibles has that in parenthesis. Now, I'm, I'm using an ESV up here in the pulpit. And it uh, sets it off at the beginning with an M dash, but it does not place it in a, Parenthesis. The New King James puts it in a parenthesis, which extends down through the end of verse 17. And he, he just takes a diversion because he wants us to make sure we understand how sin gets transmitted and how that condemnation of Adam's original sin gets transmitted to everyone. And in verse, uh, so in, starting in verse 13 through 17, or 13 and 14, Paul describes, rather, Paul describes the relation between sin and death. For until the law, sin was in the world. That's the giving of the Mosaic law. Sin was in the world. So this covers that period from Adam to Moses. Sin is in the world, but he said sin is not imputed where there's no law. And in other words, what he's saying is those people were not being uh, uh, imputed their sins because there's no law. So they're not condemned for their own sin. His conclusion is going to be they're condemned for Adam's sin, but they're not condemned for their sin, just like we're not condemned for our sin. We're condemned for Adam's sin. He says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even though they are not under condemnation, their condemnation is based on their sin, the fact that they were spiritually dead shows that they're under condemnation. But it's not for their sin. It's for Adam's sin. So he says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of, of Adam, who is the type of 
of him who was to come. Then we get into the next little section from 15 to 17 where Paul is going to contrast Adam's sin with grace through Jesus Christ. He says, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. But we're already we're, we're told, uh, here he says that, that that condemnation is automatic to everybody, but we've already been told that justification isn't automatic to everybody. It's qualified by the personal faith or trust in Christ. So the free gift isn't automatic to everyone. Verse 17, he says, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace. There's, that's the qualifier. If you don't receive the gift, then you don't get justification. For if, But the one man's offense goes to all, but the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Then he picks up his analogy again in verse 18 when he is going to connect Adam's sin and condemnation with Christ's obedience and justification. Notice how when we get down to verse 18, when he's picking up his primary thought, which began in verse 12, he takes us right back to those words we associated with the legal act of justification. He talks about judgment, condemnation, the one man's righteous act resulting in justification of life. So here we have uh, four good words here that emphasize uh, justification. So he's, here's where he goes back to pick up the thread that he's laid down at the end of uh, chapter 4, and now he's going to tie that in with what he's been uh, already introducing through uh, reconciliation. And then he, in verse 19 he says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So the question then is, how does death spread to all men? And in, in some Christian uh, theological backgrounds, for example, in Protestant liberalism, in Arminianism, and in uh, some other systems of, uh, of Christian theology, there's no belief in Adam's original sin. Now, they... Only their, their belief in sin is only um, varies depending on which group you're talking about. The same thing is true in Judaism. In Orthodox rabbinical Judaism, and one of the things to remember is that rabbinical Judaism is based on the Talmud. The Talmud was was the basically the rabbinical reinterpretation of the Mishnah. The Mishnah is. Uh, reaches its final codification about uh, 225 A.D. when um, uh, Rabbi Judah, Han- Han- Judah Hanasi, called Judah the Prince, 
formalizes the final form of the Mishnah. And then the rabbis start to write commentaries on the Mishnah. That's called the Gemara. That together is, it becomes the Talmud. And so that's a reinterpretation of the Mishnah, and the Mishnah is a reinterpretation of the Old Testament. You hear what I'm saying? you got the Old Testament, and it's reinterpreted by the Mishnah. There, you read the Mishnah, and you got these rabbis debating back and forth. What's, what does this mean? What does that mean? And and if you look at things in the the original text of Scripture, and and what they end up saying it means, it's it's almost like it's done a 180 degree shift. And then the the rabbis come along, and if if they made it a 180 degree shift, it'd be back to the original. So they kind of, but they. They, they turn it from up to down or somewhere the other way, but it just all gets changed so that modern Judaism or rabbinical Judaism, which comes in uh, after the destruction of the temple, uh, is very, very different from Old Testament uh, Judaism, and it's different even from, uh, from first century Judaism. And in Orthodox Judaism, they don't believe in Adam's original sin. They believe in Orthodox rabbinical Judaism, they will believe that people are bad, but they're also capable of good, but they they don't have a doctrine of total depravity. And often, in a couple of discussions I've had, they want to hear, they hear total depravity is that every person is 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 actively evil and wicked. And that's not what total depravity means. Total depravity means that every aspect of our being has been depraved, but because the sin nature also produces morality, we can be as evil people. In fact, the worst form of evil is not the overt uh, wickedness that uh, that we we see in some forms of idolatry, human sacrifice, uh, burning infants alive to uh, Moloch and and the other gods in the ancient world, that is an overt wickedness. But evil, in its worst form, is masked as 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 altruism. It's masked as that which is good and beneficial. And you saw, and I'll comment on this more <clears throat> probably Sunday morning, but you saw a wonderful example of this if you listened to all the words of, uh, of uh, the president yesterday when he was having his interview uh, with Diane, uh, no, one with Diane, who was it with? That his, oh, his interview with Robin Roberts. Um, and when he announced that he had finally changed his mind, or he had already cha- he had changed his mind some time ago, we don't know when, could have been days or weeks, but he had changed his mind, and now he believed that that it was terribly unfair and terribly prejudicial, terribly biased to not allow for same-sex marriage. And then he talked about being a Christian. Now listen to this. He talked about being a Christian. He said, of course, as a Christian, I don't believe... Uh, I have different beliefs. He wouldn't say, I believe that it's wrong. He just said, as a Christian, I have uh, different views. But because I'm a Christian, I must affirm their right to have, uh, to ha- be treated equally with all, all married couples. And I'm going, where does it say that in the Bible? And where do we get this idea that, that somehow because you're, you don't believe that uh, homosexual sins should be uh, legalized by statutory uh, uh, commitment 
that that means we're prejudiced. I mean, we we should not like sin, but that doesn't mean we don't like sinners. I have friends who are have commit all kinds of sins. They're they're gossips. They're they're liars. Uh, they have committed all kinds of different sins. Some are arrogant. Some are uh, uh, all of the above. Um, but and we're all, we're all that. But we don't legalize, justify, and codify in uh, national law their sinfulness and make it okay. Just because somebody commits sins and they're a nice person doesn't mean it's okay. But we, we think that way nationally. I, I, you, you hear this a lot. I, it really hit me many years ago. I was listening to a, a news broadcast where some uh, young man had committed a heinous murder. And they were interviewing some of his friends. And they said, well, he was just such a wonderful guy. No, he wasn't. He was a sinner like the rest of us. He's as capable of, of any form of sin as anyone else is. Uh, sometimes he was wonderful. Sometimes he wasn't. But he wasn't inherently a wonderful person. He was inherently a sinner. And that was why he committed sin. And that's how we all are. We're born sinners and because that's our nature. We have, we're spiritually dead. We're under condemnation. And we can't do anything else but do that which asserts our independence from God. And essentially, this comes down to something we're going to have to define, and that is what is sin. Because a lot of times when you, t- you and I talk with people who are not Christians, or even when we talk to people who are Christians like this lady uh, Jean talked to uh, last week, is they have restricted sin to such a narrow category of heinous, horrible actions that that when you say you're a sinner, they, they say, no, I'm not, because in their mind, sin means committing these horrible, horrible things. But the Bible says sin is any act, any thought, any, any word that violates the character of God. And, and it's, it's not that there are degrees of sin, there are degrees of consequences from sin, but there are not degrees of sin. Telling a, quote, little white lie is as much a violation of the character of God as committing uh, genocide. The consequences are far different, but they're both sins. Eating a piece of fruit in disobedience to God plunged us all into this nasty mess that we're in. It wasn't, it wasn't some act of, of genocide. It wasn't uh, anything horrible. It was just a, a, a everyday act that many of us perform every single day, but it was done in disobedience to God. Now, many of us do many other things in disobedience to God. I understand that. But, so we need to address this question, how does death spread to all men? How, come, how can we all be held, be guilty? And that's the way God designed the, the, the human race and the unity of the human race. So he begins, Paul begins in Romans 5.12 by stating it this way. Uh, For this reason, he's not drawing a conclusion. This phrase, diatata here, uh, lays a ground or motive or cause for something. Uh, so he is essentially saying that for this reason for this cause, uh, for, from this motive, th- this is the cause, this is the ground, this is the origin, uh, uh, a cause of God's actions and, and sin. He says, uh, therefore, or for this reason, 
just as through one man sin entered the world. And then he uses this this um, particle of comparison. Uh, Hosper in the Greek it is uh, translated simply as just as, and it lays the groundwork that he's going to build his whole discussion here on this comparison and contrast between Adam, the first man, and Jesus as the second Adam. Now, we call him the second Adam because he's created the same way the first Adam was created. He is without sin. Adam was created without sin. Jesus in his humanity is just as capable of not of, of, of sinning or not sinning. He has the same volition as Adam did in his humanity. And we'll get into some of the questions related to that as we go through this study. But in his humanity, that's the, that's the whole issue. He has to face life and the testings of life to decide, always decide for God and always in obedience to God. This is what Philippians 2 describes, uh, Jesus, that he is humble, and humble is that he submitted himself to the authority of God uh, to the point of obedience even to going to the cross. And so there's this comparison that Adam failed and we're suffering the consequences, but Jesus in his humanity succeeds, and because of that, the human race can be restored to its original purpose and fulfill the original plan that God had for the human race as the image, as his image bearers in uh, ruling and reigning o- over the planet. So Paul sets this up by saying, just as uh, through one man sin entered the world. Now, uh, in, in Greek grammar, as I pointed out, you have this uh, phrase, hospere, which introduces the beginning of a comparison, and then the second part is going to introduce uh, by either uh, the word hutas, hutas, which it means this, or it might be rendered in the Greek hutas kai. And um, what we have in the second part of, the, of, of this book where it says, and thus death spread to all men, in the Greek that is a kai hutas. See, they, they switch the order of those two words. But never is the comparison formula, uh, the second part introduced by a, by a kai hutas. It's always introduced by hutos, hutas kai. So the second part of this verse isn't the second part of the comparison. The second part of the comparison doesn't come in until uh, we get down to about verse uh, 18 where he picks it up again. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so, and that's when we're going to pick it up when we get, uh, when we get down there. So Paul is simply expanding uh, the initial statement, just as through one man sin entered the world, by the second statement, and thus death spread to all men. The, the, the last part of this verse is a, an echo of the first part. So we understand the point that it, you have one man, and it's because of that one man and his decision that sin uh, enters into the world. And so then he, Paul concludes in that second half by saying, in this manner, uh, death spread to all men. In what manner? Because all sin, that is, in Adam uh, positionally. 
uh, just structurally, it's, uh, you see that there's a, uh, a chiasm here. You have, I've underlined the word sin and death, and then death and sin. And so the focal point here is on what? It's on the center of the chiasmos, the word, the two words death. That's what he's focusing on, not on sin, but on death, the consequences of sin. So he says in the comparison, just as through one man, that one man was the means by which sin entered into the world. And it's interesting here that the word sin has an article with it, which means he's talking about a specific sin, not just any sin that Adam uh, committed, but the sin. This is it. This is the sin that changed everything. It wasn't Eve's sin. When Eve ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it had an impact on only one person, and that was, that, that was she. But when she offered it to Adam because he was the head of the home and the head of the family, and there's a lot of uh, important implications there for men, men are still the head of the home and the head of the family, it's his decision that changes everything. It's not her decision. Ever since then, men have been passing the buck and saying, well, check with the wife, let her do it. Um, That's the problem. So we have this sin here, and sin means simply, the Greek word here, hamartia, means simply to miss the mark, to miss the mark. That is Romans 3.23, we all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we saw and we studied that, that that phrase, glory of God, is an idiom for all of his character. We fall short of his standard. We just can't be good enough. No matter what we try to do and how we try to deceive ourselves, we can't be be good enough. God wants somebody with a uh, 10-point average on a 4-point scale. And none of us at our very best even even manage to score in the in the uh, positive side of the uh, of the number line. Uh, we're in deficits and we can't get out of it by ourselves. So it is through one man that the sin entered the world. Now it's interesting here because there are two different words that are used in in Romans five twelve for for entry. Now this is a word that should be familiar to those of you who are here. Uh, the last couple of Tuesday nights when we were talking about demon possession and the difference between demon possession and demon influence. I pointed out that demon possession passages use the word uh, ace erkamai. Ace is a preposition meaning entry or into or towards something, and erkamai is a word meaning to come or to go. When they're combined together, uh, ace erkamai means to enter into something. And so from that na- that that verb that's used in the... A description of what happens with a demon-possessed person, we know that it means a demon takes up residence or enters inside the body of a person and, and can take over control. So this is that same word. It means to enter into something. Um, it's a, an aorist indicative here referring to generally to something that's happened in the past, but one of the ways an aorist is used is as a, something that's beginning, and, and the grammatical term is an in- inceptive Aorist. I know that you'll look that up when you go home and add this to your vocabulary. An inceptive aorist means that it should be translated just as through one man, sin began its entry into the world. It's got that, that emphasis on the beginning of a process. And so sin began to enter the world, 
and death through sin. So death comes through sin, and this is all forms of death, not just spiritual death, but it includes all forms of death. Spiritual death was the uh, condemnation, the legal condemnation, but in this passage, he's talking about the ramifications of that on every single human being. So we're not talking about the legal penalty. We're talking about the consequences of that legal penalty. All the forms of death enter into uh, human experience because of that one sin. And then he says, and thus death spread to all men. And here he uses a similar word to the one he used for entry. He uses the word diarchomai from dia, the preposition, Greek preposition dia, plus the verb erchomai. He uses that verb diarchomai, and diarchomai doesn't mean just simply to enter. It means to come through, to pass through. It's used of things like a sword piercing into a, a body uh, of Christ passing through the heavens in his ascension uh, to the third heaven. And it has that idea of something that is going in and spreading. It would be used uh, to describe a gas expanding and permeating a house, uh, all the areas of a house. So uh, the, the first statement Paul makes is that sin enters. It goes through the front door uh, into the world and uh, death through sin, and thus death begins to spread out to all mankind. And the word that is used here is the plural of anthropos. Anthropos can mean male, but a lot of times it means just the human race. And so here it would be uh, adequate to understand this death spread to all, uh, all human beings. Why? Because all sinned. So we have to always remember that sin isn't defined by its impact in our, terms of our experience, but by its relation to God. Sin is sin because it violates the character of God, not because it has certain negative consequences in our experience. It's not a sin because somebody did something that hurt somebody else. It's not defined in terms of, of, of somebody's action. This is why when David prays to God, after his uh, sin of adultery with Bathsheba, so she's one of his, one today we would say his victim, uh, Uriah, her husband, he puts him in a danger zone in battle, so he'll get killed. He conspires to murder him. David's sin has impacted a lot of people in his experience. But when David confesses his sin, he doesn't say, forgive me, Lord, I hurt all these people. He says, I violated your character against you and you only have I sinned. Sin is not something we commit against somebody else. Sin is only something we commit in violation of God's standard. So this is what I'm, I'm emphasizing here is that sin is defined by God's standard, not by its uh, correlation to human, uh, human activity. And again, it simply means to miss the mark. Well, next time I want to come back and get a little further into this and look at some of the different words for sin so that we can come to understand a little better what that is because this is a major term uh, coming up. In verse 13, we read, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, uh, but sin is not counted where there is no law. 
and um, and so sin, and then we have the word trespass when we get into verse uh, verse fifteen, and so we have to understand this terminology as well as the understanding of terminology for condemnation and judgment. So we'll come back and look at those uh, next time as we continue. Uh, going through the last part of Romans 5. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things and come to a better understanding of the dynamics of our salvation, understanding who we are. Not that we're as evil as we could be or bad as we could be, but that we have the potential. Uh, We have potential to do relatively good things, as our Lord said to his disciples, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Uh, We do good things. We do many good things, but they don't measure up to the standard of your righteousness. And we dare not uh, dilute or water down the concept of your righteousness because it is an absolute perfect standard. And when we realize we can't achieve it on our own, only then are we cast uh, completely upon your grace and your provision for us, and we must rely upon what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we've studied and that our understanding and appreciation of the gospel will strengthen us so that we can be more confident and more capable in explaining the gospel to those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.